0: Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week it's a conversation about colorectal cancer with Dr. Laura Baum. Dr. Baum is an assistant professor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology.
1: So Laura, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. Um, sure. So I'm a medical oncologist. Um, I'm also trained
2: in um, palliative care. I um, <clears throat> That means that initially I did an internal medicine residency and then I did a fellowship in palliative care as well as medical oncology and hematology. So I came um, here to Yale to serve um, at, in the clinic, taking care of patients with GI cancers, gastrointestinal cancers, which includes um, colorectal, the most common gastrointestinal cancer um, in the clinic. And I also see um, palliative care consults in the hospital.
1: Okay, well let's let's uh, look at both of those uh, kind of segments of of your career. But let's start with colorectal cancer, given that it is colorectal cancer awareness month. Now, colorectal cancer is one of the most common cancers that we see here in the U.S. Um, Can you kind of give us a bit of the landscape about how many patients are diagnosed with colorectal cancer, um, how many patients pass away, and have we seen any trends in improvement in those statistics? I would say that uh, colorectal cancer, I, I believe,
2: is the fourth most common um, cancer in the U.S.? Maybe it's, maybe it's the third. Um, it's, it's one of the most common cancers we do see. Um, <clears throat> I think it's the fourth most common cancer and the third most common cancer death uh, in the United States. So the incidence, meaning how many people get colorectal cancer, uh, has, has not significantly improved. In fact, we're seeing more younger people getting it but the uh, treatments and how long people are living with colorectal cancer um, has improved. So I think, you know, it's, it's a complicated question. Uh, it's going in, in both directions all at the same time. Um, but, you know, it is definitely one of the most common cancers, one of the most common fatal cancers, um, both in the United States. Um, just as far as numbers, I think um, about 8% of all new cancer cases in the United States are colorectal um, and a similar,
1: about 8% of all cancer deaths. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason why colorectal cancer uh, perhaps is seen – Quite frequently, is is two pronged. First, um, I think that there is general awareness of colorectal cancer, and and the second is that we have uh, screening modalities. So, let's talk about each of those things in turn. You know, in terms of colorectal cancer, if people are going to be symptomatic, if they're going to present with symptoms, can you talk a little bit about what are the common symptoms that patients may present with uh, that leads to people wondering about a diagnosis of colorectal cancer?
2: Well, I think those questions really go hand in hand because... You know, the ideal, ideally, uh, the goal of a screening test is to find a a cancer or a problem um, early enough that finding it earlier makes a difference, meaning that finding it earlier allows better treatment or longer survival or something like that, um, that you would otherwise not find symptomatically. So many people with colorectal cancer will not have symptoms, They, they will have a screening colonoscopy or, or whatever it is, and that would allow diagnosis prior to having okay. symptoms. If colorectal cancer is diagnosed based on symptoms, the most common is bleeding in the stool, so either red or black blood in the stool. Uh, that can present as overt, like visible blood or as, you know, anemia that maybe the primary care doctor or somebody notices The patient has iron deficiency anemia, even though they're not menstruating or they're not bleeding from another known issue. Um, And I think that would be the most common way it presents. You know, it can present in more serious ways up front. It can present as an obstruction of the colon. It can present with more advanced disease as um, symptoms outside of the colon if it's spread. It can present with weight loss, uh, you know, if people are... Starting to lose weight from their cancer diagnosis, um, but ideally, early colorectal cancer is either asymptomatic or diagnosed with, you know, a small amount of blood, um, you know, found on some kind of screening exam or, or noticed by the patient or a doctor.
1: Yeah. So certainly if this is going to be symptomatic, these are symptoms that a lot of people are not going to ignore, right? So if you uh, certainly have blood in your stool or you find that you, you cannot uh, pass stool, that you're having some bloating and obstruction, maybe you have weight loss or jaundice, um, those are things that oftentimes will prompt you to go and see a doctor. But as you say, Laura, it, it's ideal if uh, colorectal cancer is picked up early with a screening test. And we have so many screening tests now available. But that brings me to the next question, which is, in terms of colorectal Screening, given the fact that we have so many options—fecal occult blood tests, uh, DNA tests like Cologuard, uh, you know, sigmoidoscopy, colonoscopy, virtual colonoscopy, barium enema—I mean, we can go on and on. There are so many options in terms of colorectal screening and different intervals at which these are each recommended can you it can get kind of confusing. Um, so can you lay out um kind of the screening guidelines? Who should get screened? When should they start screening with what and how frequently? Sure. Um, and I will just say to your earlier point,
2: I think um, I think people are very capable of ignoring even very serious symptoms uh, and because they're afraid. And so <clears throat> I would say that, If you're, you know, if you're having symptoms that you're worried about, um, think of it as being reassuring and proactive to look into them rather than, you know, letting them continue to develop and presenting very late because of fear. Uh, And I think that also can hold true for screening tests. Some people think that they would rather not know, but the truth is uh, colorectal cancer screening allows diagnosis while the cancer is curable um, and manageable. Um, and the screening itself has really evolved. So I'm going to confess a little bit of ignorance about some of the um, trends in screening. I, Before I became an oncologist, I was a primary care doctor. Uh, and so that is really in their realm. Uh, I think most oncologists have a bias towards um, the colonoscopy. I think most physicians that I know use that as their sort of what they would get for themselves. It's the um, most evidence-based colorectal cancer screening. Uh, It's done, um, if it's normal, it's done approximately every 10 years. Um, But I think a lot of patients have some, you know, fears about the bowel prep or having the colonoscopy done, and there's been this development of other options. So the most frequently discussed is the high-sensitivity fecal occult blood testing, Um, That is a yearly test. It's very similar to the fit test, which is, I think, also done on the stool. Uh, (laughs) Those are both done annually. Um, And the key, I think, is that it has to be followed up. You know, if it's negative, um, it has to be done the next year again. And if it's positive, it has to be followed up with some kind of more direct visualizing test. So it uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but some very large percentage of patients who get these FIT tests or these FOBTs mailed to their homes and, and do them don't necessarily follow through on having the colonoscopy afterwards. So I think it's very important to realize that the test only works if you're going to react to the to the um, to the results. So both of those direct stool tests are annual, and they require um, a colonoscopy. If they're if they're positive for blood, which also means if you have hemorrhoids <coughs> or some other kind of problem, they're going to um, be less helpful. Um, as far as the virtual colonoscopy, um, i I don't have a strong opinion. I know it can be comforting to people to not have the internal colonoscopy. Um, I think it has shown to be pretty effective. Um, But, you know, obviously not the same as the direct colonoscopy. It doesn't allow for biopsy and it doesn't allow for intervention. So one goal of the colonoscopy is early diagnosis, but another goal is actually prevention, which is that colon cancer usually develops from polyps. So when a person has, um, or what's called an adenoma, a colonoscopy, if everything is normal, they say everything looks normal and you'll have another one in 10 years. But oftentimes they'll say, "Oh, we removed three polyps. Have another colonoscopy in three years or five years or whatever the gastroenterologist thinks based on their appearance," and then you're able to also remove those. So it's it prevents. It's almost like taking out a precancerous lesion. Like if you go for a skin check um, and you did that virtually, they wouldn't also be able to say to biopsy a mole that looks suspicious. Or to remove a precancerous sort of sun damage spot. It's the same with the colon. You want to be able to do the colonoscopy, but also do whatever biopsies or um, preventive removal of polyps is needed, depending on what they find. So I, I, you know, I think that the benefit of the school the stool testing is that it's easy. It's done at home, it's once a year. The benefit of the colonoscopy is that. It's more thorough, and it really depends on what you feel you're capable of of, of doing. And I think both are very useful. Um, as far as timing, the old recommendations were starting at age fifty. Um, the new recommendations from the U.S. Preventative Task Force, Preventive Services Task Force, have recently gone down to age forty-five, and that's based on the new trends in colon cancer occurring earlier. So colorectal cancer screening is recommended for adults beginning at age 45. Some guidelines say continuing until age 75, but really the idea is that it should continue until, uh, for screening uh, until somebody has like a life expectancy, let's say of 10 years, because you're looking to catch these adenomas or these polyps early enough to sort of They take supposedly about 10 years to develop into cancer and that's why they do it every 10 years. So you're looking to have a, for the screening test, not for a diagnostic colonoscopy, but for a screening test without symptoms to do this for somebody who has a 10 year life expectancy. So we're not looking for colonoscopies in the very, very elderly. um, And we're trying to start around the time that colorectal cancer incidence is beginning, um, preempting it. So starting around age 45. I will say that people who have a family history of colon cancer or some kind of hereditary syndrome do need to start earlier than age 45. They need to start 10 years prior to their youngest family member. So if there's a family history or a syndrome, you know, of cancer, colon cancer at age 37, then you would start at age 27. Um, And uh, that's sort of the idea of screening is that you're catching something early, you're allowing early intervention to make a difference in both, in this case, in both prevention and
1: um, treatment and prognosis. Yeah, such good information. Um, We are going to take a short break for a medical minute. When we come back, we'll learn more about colorectal cancer with my guest, Dr. Laura Baum.
0: Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital where their Cancer Genetics and Prevention Program includes a colon cancer genetics and prevention program that provides comprehensive risk assessment, education, and screening, smilocancerhospital.org. It's estimated that over 240,000 men in the U.S. will be diagnosed with prostate cancer this year, with over 3,000 new cases being identified here in Connecticut. One in eight American men will develop prostate cancer in the course of his lifetime, Major advances in the detection and treatment of prostate cancer have dramatically decreased the number of men who die from the disease. Screening can be performed quickly and easily in a physician's office using two simple tests, a physical exam and a blood test. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital, where doctors are also using the Artemis machine which enables targeted biopsies to be performed. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Laura Baum. We're talking about the care of patients with colorectal cancer in honor of Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. And right before the break, Laura, you started talking about, we were talking about screening and the whole plethora of screening tests that are out there. You had mentioned that the USPSTF has moved the age down to 45 to start screening. Um, And certainly that can be even earlier if you have a family history of a colorectal cancer syndrome. So you want to start screening 10 years younger than the youngest person in your family got diagnosed which leads us to the next question, which are, are there other risk factors aside from family history that put you at increased risk of colorectal cancer? So often I find that patients are always asking, like, what did I do? You know, is this caused by smoking or alcohol, red meat, smoked meats, uh, fat, uh, all of those kinds of things? Can you talk a little bit about risk factors? Sure. So I think the answer is, To
2: that question, is yes, it's caused by everything you said. Um, But the more important thing, I think, is that so often when people are facing cancer and they're asking, What did I do? Um, That's to me, that's like an existential distress question, you know, a feeling of guilt and stigma, um, a sense of the unfairness of it all. And I I will say that it, it is very unfair and unpredictable. There are many people who eat high fat smoked meat, <laughs> red meat diets and drink a lot of alcohol and um, are sedentary and don't develop colorectal cancer. So I think it's very important to sort of think of this as, um, once you're facing the disease, to think of this as something, um, you know, that's, that's not your fault, that's not stigmatized in that sense. Um, as far as preventing colorectal cancer, though, uh, it is, um, aside from family syndromes, it is also associated with um, a lot of those things we just mentioned, particularly alcohol and obesity contribute to um, colorectal cancer, uh, <clears throat> as does, um, you know, the idea concept of a low fiber diet, sort of having a less healthy gut biome. Uh, interestingly, and I this isn't super relevant to a lot of our younger patients, Um, But long histories of starvation and deprivation also contribute to colorectal cancer. Um, For example, um, survivors of the Holocaust uh, in Nazi Germany have
1: very high rates of colorectal cancer. You know, the other thing that you had mentioned right at the top of the show, though, was that while the incidence of colorectal cancer is... um, quite high, that we're, we're making strides in terms of increasing longevity um, after a colorectal cancer diagnosis. So can you talk to us a little bit more about why that is? I mean, part of it might be that we're catching more colorectal cancers earlier with screening like we talked about, but another might be advances in treatment. So can you talk to us a little bit about where the state of the science is there? Yeah, it's definitely both. So catching
2: cancer earlier allows for curative intent treatment and the state of the science has significantly improved there as well. You know, for colon cancer, that means surgery and likely chemotherapy um, subsequently afterward in order to make sure that there's a higher rate of cure. For rectal cancer, it means chemotherapy and radiation, um, sometimes even without surgery, but generally Um, you know, with a surgery as well. And that has improved, right, those cure rates of early stage colon and rectal cancer. The long-term cure is improving. We're really perfecting the science there of even now starting to think, how do we not over-treat people? How do we treat somebody with a stage, earlier stage colon or rectal cancer in a way where they're going to have the best long-term survivorship with the least complications and the least surgical complications, the least radiation complications, Um, the least chemotherapy complications. So, that has improved significantly. And then for patients who are being diagnosed with advanced disease, um, there's like a new, you know, the National Cancer Institute says survivorship starts from diagnosis. There's this concept of metastatic survivorship, which some people find controversial. I don't love it, um, having followed a lot of patients with metastatic disease on social media Um, I think some people like it, some people don't, but the idea is that you can be living with advanced cancer um, for some amount of years, and that's certainly true in colon cancer. Unlike a lot of other gastrointestinal cancers, pancreas cancer, and so on, colon cancer is becoming a disease that even diagnosed in stage four metastatic without surgical options, people are living for several years, um, making it through initial chemotherapy Second line chemotherapy, third line chemotherapy, uh, just yesterday night, for example, here we were reviewing the results of the uh, Gastrointestinal Annual Society of Clinical Oncology um, abstracts, which showed some real movement even in third and fourth line treatments, you know, patients living several, several years um, after diagnosis.
1: So just a a quick question. Why don't you like the term survivorship? That was a a I like the term survivorship.
2: I I personally know it's very controversial, this idea of calling yourself a a metastatic survivor or an advanced cancer survivor. Um, Some people love this. They find it empowering, the idea that survivorship starts from diagnosis. And even though they have a terminal diagnosis, they are living um, with advanced disease and they're a cancer survivor, that they're surviving cancer for the two or three or however many years they're they're with us. And I think some people, and a lot of this is coming out of the breast cancer Twitter (laughs) world, uh, feel that it's a completely different experience to have a terminal diagnosis regardless of the fact that you're living longer with it uh, and that it minimizes or... um, doesn't fully encompass their experience because even though they have quality of life and they're living with advanced cancer, um, they know that they are going to die from that cancer and they find it disingenuous to call themselves a cancer survivor. So I think both perspectives are really valid. Um, it really depends on the person and the patient sort of centered perspective on that. Um, I have personally been using the term living with advanced disease and um, more than saying somebody is a metast- metastatic survivor, or there's a bunch of different terminology for it, um, for people who are sort of, you know, on chemotherapy for the rest of their life and going to die of their um, cancer eventually.
1: Yeah. W- which brings me to the next uh, kind of topic, which is you are also trained as a palliative care physician. And I find so often that um, – For some people, that concept of palliative care is really scary um, because they equate it with, I'm going to die, and my care team has given up hope on me.
2: Can you kind of speak to that? I think a lot of people don't understand what palliative care is. Um, And what we're trying to tell people is that when you are living with advanced disease, you have a lot of good years left. Let's say um, you may still need extra support. So palliative care can start early on in a cancer diagnosis to help with prognostic, understanding their prognosis, with treatment decision-making, with an added layer of support, um, with spiritual support, with pain and symptom management, or palliative care can come in later and really be helping with end-of-life questions. Palliative care is very much a spectrum. It's given with cancer treatment, um, it's given. Uh, you know, while curative intent therapies are being pursued, pursued if there's a lot of um, needs, so I think it's it's really a spectrum. It includes hospice, you know, palliative care. Hospice is part of palliative care, but it's not the same. And I, I think a lot of patients think um, when they hear palliative care that it's like a bridge to hospice and that can be intimidating. Um, A lot of national surveys on perception have shown that, for example, with hospice, it's very popular. It has a very good reputation. People think very favorably of hospice for other people. So they have a very positive idea of it, but they don't think that it should be for them. And so I think the idea of palliative care is that it's not just end of life. It's not just hospice. um, And Using palliative care only as sort of a bridge or a mini hospice does a disservice to patients who might benefit from it earlier on in their treatment or with
1: support issues,
2: that kind of thing. Mm -hmm.
1: And so, you know, I know that for many cancer centers, there's this kind of move to integrating palliative care into the curative treatment realm, right? Um, So uh, this idea that palliative care can actually start at diagnosis, perhaps um, as, you know, that extra layer of support, maybe in a more secondary role to the curative oncologist, um, that kind of can grow over time as needed. With you being um, having two hats in the same person, um, Do you find that that is a a more seamless transition uh, for you with your patients? I don't know. I I think, um, well, first of all, I would separate
2: palliative care from diagnosis from palliative care with curative intent. I think a lot of times when we talk about palliative care from diagnosis, we do really mean for patients diagnosed with advanced disease and to allow that gradual transition where the cancer doctors play in a larger role, and eventually the palliative care doctor will play the larger role. With palliative care and curative intent, I think usually the goal is like a bridge, you know, a bridge to the cure or dealing with uncertainty, dealing with what it means to have a life-threatening illness, even if it's not life-limiting. But um, to your question, I think with those patients who are getting curative intent treatment, when it, you know, when it doesn't go well, which happens occasionally, you know, when there's a recurrence or a relapse, sometime after um, the presumed cure, or when the treatment, you know, isn't 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 going well. I think that's just very hard for people. Um, it's a very big disappointment. It's a change in expectations. Um, uncertainty is very hard for people. Um, I try to make it a more <laughs> seamless transition and to really um, be there for people through that, but it's, um, it's not something that, you know, it's not news that anybody wants to get. And I think, um, understanding that, you know, that is part of being human with them and realizing that it's not easy for anybody to think that they're achieving a cure and then find out
1: that, that they didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think having those difficult conversations is by definition, difficult. And and so, you know, in palliative care teams, there's often multiple people who are well trained to have those conversations and and deal with various issues that come up, whether it's physical symptoms or, you know, the emotional burden or the financial burden or the existential spiritual crises that that people are having. Um, can you can you talk a little bit more about Um, how that team aspect really helps in terms of palliative care. I mean, you are a palliative care physician, but you're one person. I can imagine that sometimes you you also benefit from having a palliative care team behind you.
2: Definitely. And since I'm also working in the outpatient setting primarily as the medical oncologist, I will often consult my palliative care colleague who's that's his focus. Because I think sometimes even when I have the skill set, Um, it's helpful to have him involved. He's our GI palliative care oncologist, um, just because he has that, he has a different focus. You sometimes need a different set of eyes and ears in the room and somebody to have a different kind of time frame of what they're going to talk about. So not only do I use my own palliative care consult in the outpatient setting, when I am working with the palliative care team, um, I find it very helpful that there's a social worker, that there's a chaplain, um, for spiritual distress, um, at other institutions, I think they'll have sometimes an art therapist or, or, or various different people can be a part of the palliative care
0: team. Dr. Laura Baum is an assistant professor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.